Thanks for joining us on Leading Beyond the Code by Cadre Connect. This is the podcast where we go beyond the surface of technology and explore the transformative power of leadership through interviews with industry leaders. Hosted by me, Ben Malloy. Welcome to the show, everyone. Today, I'm joined by Douglas Cullen. Douglas is the CTO at Abex Capital. Uh, it's excellent to have you on the show today, Douglas. Uh, thanks a lot for having us in your office today. It's beautiful. So, yeah, welcome to the show. Thank you. Yeah, good to be here. Good stuff. I think a really nice place to start would be an overview of Abex um, initially, and then maybe a little bit about your background and your career history. Uh, yes, so Abex Capital it stands for Algorithmic Best Execution. So we targeting institutional clients, you know, people like asset managers, hedge funds, other professional traditional finance firms, and giving them the ability to do algorithmic trading Excellent. in uh, the crypto space. This kind of stuff has existed for a, a long time in traditional finance. Algorithmic trading is typically used to acquire large positions with out moving the market against you. Yeah. So instead of doing it in one large lump, you do it over time based on different strategies that helps you sort of track what the price is during the day. Uh, it's an area that isn't um, that well served yet in crypto because uh, crypto is still to mature in these places. So there's uh, plenty of space and opportunity for us in there. Mm -hmm. And uh, eventually we'll be uh, moving towards taking risk directly ourselves and allowing uh, these institutions to trade against us so that we will do over-the-counter principal-type trades. Excellent. And I, I really want to talk about your background because, you know, you've had a very corporate career, I'd say, up until now joining a startup. Is that correct? It's... It's a bit of a mixture. Yeah. Um, yes, I first got involved in traditional finance way back in the days working for NatWest Markets. We were providing services to them where I uh, was involved in settling equities. All the way back then in the uh, the 80s, you, you s settled every second Friday. It was uh, well, that kind of, you know, there was no idea of sort of getting to T plus zero uh, when that started meaning you'll settle on the same day. So, yes, that was a sort of uh, a journey. I wasn't based in London at the time, uh, working up in Edinburgh. My wife ended up taking a, a job with NatWest Markets. I came down to London and uh, ended up in Morgan Stanley and did a, a, a number of what you saw, sort of middle and back office things there. Mm -hmm. Ended up moving into front office areas, doing an awful lot of electronic trading fixed income electronic trading in the very early days in the 90s when people would you know would have things like if somebody wanted a price they would sort of chat on a Bloomberg terminal yep. or Reuters or something uh, and ask the you know the other desks that or that they were working against to sort of say hey give me a price on this and so those were systems that started that whole request for quote Amazing. Auto-quoting, where you're letting the machines make all the decisions within the parameters that the trade has set up, which is interesting fun, you know. Then sort of moved, uh, sorry, I moved into uh, FX there, uh, ended up moving to Citadel, where I did what was considered high-frequency trading back then. It's called low latency these days, uh, ultra-low latency, but 
if you imagine in the earlier days of high frequency, you were just electronically generating a lot of of orders, but there was no concept of being co-located in the same data center mm. as the exchange. You you had to be near them, you know, a building uh, in in the same sort of general region of London or something of that yeah. nature. And yeah. it was all small leased lines that we used to do in those days. And now, uh, yeah, then that evolved. Um, I moved to uh, another hedge fund. That was a tremendously good time, you know, small environment. A lot of the way that the hedge funds operate themselves is that they they sort of take on board a person or, or a, a, a small team of people with an idea. Yep. And they f sort of finance it and let them build the system. And if it makes money, they stay. And if they don't make money, the whole thing gets sort of shed. Mm -hmm. So they, because they are just there to make money, in some ways for themselves and for the people that are providing money to the hedge fund, they can have that sort of different view mm -hmm. uh, where they're not, you know, like a large bank that has to provide all sorts of services all over the place, you know, yep. from custody to other areas that aren't important to hedge funds. So with that, you get a lot of autonomy. They deliberately sort of set them up so that they they don't overlap too much. So it is easy to unpick them and, and get yeah. rid of them if it doesn't work out. So you, you learn a lot there. You have to do many, many things yourself. Then ended up in JP Morgan for uh, really quite a long time, just, just shy of 10 years, which is, isn't too unusual for JP Morgan. It's kind of a, a company where uh, you, you either last a, a few months or you last a very long time. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's one of those companies. And there it's... I did join front office. I was working in the options trading desk uh, area. And, you know, from my experience of seeing what we had done in the hedge funds and other areas have been where we created our own ultra low latency uh, infrastructure, the bank wasn't doing it very well, mainly because there's big institutions have very fixed ideas of, of what good is. Mm -hmm. And this is approved and this is the pattern that we have and that's the only thing we're allowed to do. And so I, I sort of shifted into a, a role of getting the, the company to understand what what was needed to succeed in the low latency yeah. environment and creating all of that new infrastructure, effectively creating a new pattern in the company that would allow us to do the best solution possible uh, while still fitting in with all the corporate environment yeah. and all the teams that own little pieces. So that was a, a different type of challenge. Uh, it wasn't um, technical, but it was much more, I think, a, a lot of negotiation going on. Yeah, that's a really interesting, that's a really interesting point because I think, you know, technology and creating technology is so creative. And then I find that maybe in, in that kind of industry, it feels like there might be a lot of red tape. There, there's a lot of red tape for a lot of good reasons. Yeah. Um, I mean, most people don't appreciate it. When you're a giant international uh, investment bank, and like with JP Morgan, they've also got a, a huge retail section as well. They answer to every regulator everywhere. Uh, and so they've got an enormous rule book of agreed ways of behaving uh, and controls to meet all those different countries' concerns about what it means to be a, a good bank uh, and protect clients' money. So those rules and agreements, once they're sort of set in place, they're, they're not that easy to change yeah. uh, because you've got to go to the regulator and explain why you'd want to do something differently. And so there's a lot of overhead. Mm -hmm. 
the regulators themselves aren't necessarily themselves strongly technical people. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when you're talking about certain ways of doing things or they can, you know, it's, they look at it in sort of, well, it's like if you were introducing cloud to regulators in the early days, they were looking at it saying, well, you're saying you're, you're wanting to, to do this from a, a region that isn't our country. We kind of expect you to be in our country to yeah. be regulated. So there was different conversations and complexities around that. So when you've got that rule book, um, there's always a good reason why you can't do something. Yeah. And that's the problem. Did you, do you have to have a lot of technical conversations, but in a non-technical way? Um, it's, I mean, for example, the, the networking team, they have, they're very important that the networking team is there protecting the company. Because a lot of the companies, certainly back in that generation, their, their security is based around the eggshell con concept. It's very hard to get inside the company, but once you're inside the company, you can go anywhere. Okay. So they're very keen to protect the boundaries and they create different networking zones of, of trust. So when we're talking to uh, an exchange and we wanted to be co-located inside the exchange next to their matching engines, the networking team goes, well, there has to be a firewall between you. And we have to say, no, we don't want to firewall because it will completely destroy our ability to compete with everybody. Yeah. Uh, we, we will be at a massive disadvantage. So you have to go through the explanations and working with them to get them to understand where, where the firewall can move to somewhere else. So it's not in the way yeah. how things are, how it's private, how it's, it's effectively saying that, you know, is one of these exchanges going to be the source of the attack into our company? It's, for UDP, it's not likely, uh, and you would only get as far as the the first box or something. So, it's those kinds of conversations where, in those companies, the, the technologists own technology, but the business goes, "This is the business need, and this is what has to be achieved." And so that that's the really only good lever yeah. you have is to say that. You know, you're not meeting any of the business objectives. This is why you have to do it differently. Mm -hmm. So it's getting those technologists to understand why why it must be different. Yeah, interesting. And then how does the culture, say, in your past in JP Morgan, how does that differ to a startup? You know, quite a corporate environment to them. I mean, typically a startup is, well, what you'd, what we all see on the TV and what we imagine on the, you know, quite a all hands on deck kind of thing. Yes. I mean, I mean, startups, I mean, the best way of looking at it is if you're not doing it, there isn't really no one else to do it. So mm. you, you have to just get on with whatever is required. Otherwise, you know, all you've got to find or buy in resources or a third party to do it for you. Uh, there's, there's no real choice. So you, you wear, wear loads and loads of hats. In, when you're in the, the bigger environments, you have loads and loads of specialists who are hugely experienced and really good at their particular area. Mm. So you will have, you know, let's say the networking or the cyber uh, or people who worry about controls or meeting, you know, SOC 2.3 and ISO 27,000 rules and all these kinds of things. So to get things done in a, a corporate environment, there's still very much about decision has to go all the way to the top. There's very little autonomy on spending money and making changes in direction at the ground at all. Mm. It, it's, again, because of all those reasons, controls, 
there's always uh, somebody who's got a reason why you can't do that or if you ask permission here. So whereas in small companies you can take a decision on the same day, the in these large environments, uh, sometimes you are you are negotiating and uh, taking almost two years to get something done. Wow. Especially if it's a, a large sort of shift. I was uh, at JP Morgan. Um, I was heavily involved in introducing uh, public cloud into their environment. And there was a resistance to it because obviously suddenly immediately it's like are we in control of it mm -hmm. is it safe is it secure and you also had a multi-billion dollar internal it supplier all employees who provided all the traditional infrastructure our own dedicated data centers who were going but you don't need it because we're here <laughs> yeah and so and they were the same people that had to uh, allow public cloud to happen because they were or has to be plugged in and, and connected up so it, it becomes sometimes people are just like the the zone that they're in and they've got a certain comfort and they don't want to have that as they see it as competition yeah uh, occurring uh, and those sort of embedded groups with their own small world view tend to cause these frictions so you can sort of be dealing with people who their main concern for instance say is making the data center as efficient as possible mm -hmm. meaning that every box and piece of equipment in there is running at close to as 100 percent as it can be yep and then we're trying to explain to them that yeah but that means that there's no capacity in the system for you know upticks in market behavior for busy yep. days or because of to meet regulations, you've got to have standby equipment in different data centers that's sitting there doing nothing most of the time. And so they're, they're going, but you're, you're only using half of your equipment. Is it, I know, but you know the reason why. So why are you trying to, to do it? So though when they own their own data centers, they're always constrained by power and space. Mm -hmm. It's amusingly enough, if you think, when I was working back in Morgan Stanley, Fixed income department effectively had 16 large sparks machines that ran practically the entire thing. Well, wow. and then there was a shift to um, doing it on PCs, it racked PCs, um, you know, pizza box type stuff. And suddenly, you know, the data centers increased almost 100 times in size. They were starting to find, you know, they, they took away half the restaurant to turn it into a, wow. a data center. Because suddenly it was like every application was getting its own set of boxes. And that created that huge problem for the, the data center people where they there was always another application that needed another set of its own boxes. So, of course, they switched to doing a lot of virtualization instead to share the equipment again because they're worried about power, space and cooling and uh, and so on. And everyone's saying, yeah, but I, I need more. I need more. Again. We don't have room. Yeah. So when I arrived at, at one particular company and we needed a piece of equipment, you would spend, you would typically have to plan your purchase a year in advance and you might get it the next year, maybe two years later. Blimey. Uh, so when you're looking at somebody like Cloud and going, I can have that in 30 seconds, Yeah. it, it feels like a no-brainer to do. It's interesting because the tech space is moving just so quickly. Now, the whole industry. And I think that, you know, I've spoken to a lot of CTOs, a lot of senior people in technology over the years. And it feels that if you're not moving forwards with the tech, 
if you're just staying still, you're falling. You're actually falling behind quite a bit. Um, it, it, it really depends. Um, yeah. Uh, it's in finance. It's not quite uh, as simple um, because there's you know sometimes the uh, the executives at these companies joke that they're software houses with a banking license. What they really mean is we can't do anything if it isn't going through technology, but. They have got decades of experience and software and systems that would take almost any startup uh, a extremely long time to compete yeah, against their entire machine. Yeah, that's why you don't see many broad banks suddenly appear. Yeah, um, they, the the barrier for them to being able to do all markets or uh, around the world is kind of enormous. So they where you do see even challenger banks pop up, what mm. people don't necessarily realize is all you're seeing is a, a piece of software on your phone yeah. that looks like it came from the bank that you're dealing with. But an, uh, a, uh, some other high street bank that's long been established is actually doing everything under the covers. That is interesting. And I really want to talk about your role as a CTO because, you know, before we hit record, we were talking about the role of a CTO and how it almost differs in every single not even industry, differs in every single business. So what does your role look like here? There's quite a lot of hats going on here. So one of the key things that the CTO hat has on is the relationships and services that we need to buy. Obviously, because we're uh, involved uh, near clients' money uh, and helping move it around, uh, we have to be extremely secure. Absolutely. So we, you know, have a relationship and we built up, you know, expertise where we have uh, security operations centers monitoring all of our environments. Mm. That means, you know, they, they look at all the logs and the information, they look for suspicious activity and can alert us uh, immediately when there's a breach. So you do everything you can to be secure, but that in itself is uh, a false assumption. The only way you know you're secure is if you're you're looking at everything to see that, it's happening. You have to assume that somebody's going to wriggle their way in somewhere, uh, and you need to see it and, and close it down as, as fast as possible. Mm -hmm. So, primary, also sort of wearing a sort of chief security officer hat. Yeah. Because I, I don't yet have. Uh, we're not at that size where we have a chief security officer. Uh, so, that sort of area where if you damage your reputation mm -hmm. by, you know, it's known that you were broken into or client money was moved without their permission in some form of hack, then you, your company is uh, almost done. Very hard Absolutely. to recover from those kinds of things. So you have to work very, very hard to keep everything secure. And because we're on public cloud, there's a um, public cloud is a lot of it, especially in the early days, I think it was very, very friendly for developers to use, a lot like the open source community yeah. that yeah. you could make it secure, but you didn't have to. It kind of defaulting, it was uh, defaults to open and easy to use. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas the, the bit that you need all the expertise in is the least privilege, locking down the, the access, having lots of layers of things in the way. So you, you don't want to be in a situation where you've, you're only trusting one thing to be configured correctly. Mm -hmm. It's kind of dangerous. You need several things to be misconfigured, you know, to create some levels of complexity and difficulty for, for people to 
wriggle past what your, your security boundaries. And of course, the buzzword at the moment is zero trust, which, you know, uh, actually is just sort of saying uh, verify before acting. So again, our, our systems are, are built with that in mind, uh, multiple layers, they check again uh, what's happening. So even though, say, our internet facing services are fully decoupled from the back end, there's no direct socket or connection to get to the back end that goes through yeah. intermediate layers. But because the intermediate layer itself is still effectively driving the system, you still have to have zero trust inside your your back end to say, well, if they did find a way past the front end and directly injected something into one of our our tables, the system would have acted on it. So mm. how do you then make sure that even, even that vector of attack is closed off? So it's a mindset. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there'll be a lot of people listening to this uh, almost begging me to ask you about the trading platform and building that from the ground up. That's huge. How do you... Go, I mean, how do you go about that? It's such a wishy-washy way to ask a question, but what, what are your initial kind of... Well, there's um, myself and the CEO, uh, Erkan. He has an eye. Between us, we've done it a lot of times in traditional okay. finance. So you, you, know, you know what works, what feels right. But within that, the whole landscape has changed in some ways. So when I talk to a lot of people, you know, when we're recruiting and so on, I, I recognize, you know, that they're working in a traditional bank and they, uh, they built it in a way that somebody in the 90s would recognize. Right. Very client server, everything on one box, very centralized knowledge of everything going on. So they only really get to vertically scale, meaning that they, they have to have a bigger and bigger box with more more in the same place to allow them to cope with the activity. Simplifies the software and the designs in some ways. And many of those, are they've inherited that system because it's not that often that the banks uh, and sort of sit back and say, yeah, you go off and build the brand new one uh, and we'll, we'll use that when you're ready. It mm. uh, doesn't, doesn't happen very often. Uh, with us starting with Clean Sheet, and being cloud native, you are looking at sort of uh, the microservices approach, meaning horizontally scaling, very message rich systems that are trying to sort of be stateless is yeah. ideal in those environments. I mean, they obviously work super well if you're doing something like uh, somebody's shopping basket from a, a website where you're, you're buying things that message going into the basket or transactions or, you know, they only have the context of you click this button here and it all works very well. Yeah. Trading systems struggle with that because everything is so stateful. Mm -hmm. You you have to know what's going on with your, your trades out of there. And with algorithmic trading, each parent has multiple child orders that they're juggling at the same time that all have state and, and so on. You have to do slightly different things to to make things work, you, the recovery and of the system is extremely important. So you have a, a concept of, you can have something stateful running, mm -hmm. but if that process uh, becomes unhealthy and stops what it's doing, how does something else take over? How do you create those sort of uh, recovery mechanism in the system? So in the traditional world, they would have some Oh, we just restart and reread from a file or a database or something like that, mm. and it all comes back up. Whereas uh, in the you know you have that 
horizontal array of algos running, how do you sort of pick up that piece uh, and run with it? Mm. So it, that, that's some of the interesting things. You don't find a lot of people in traditional finance have had a chance to learn how to do that because they've come from those more traditional environments. You, you see, of course, there every, a lot of people have moved to environments like Kubernetes that encourages that whole microservices uh, model and scalable on demand and all the good things that those orchestrators do for you. But the they're still sort of, you know, moving the monolith into those environments as a as a computing platform as opposed to still being able to redesign. So they have to go through that journey of breaking up the the monolith to give them the capability to horizontally scale. So even with our first generation system, when we are starting from from nothing, it's built like a monolith in mm. certain places uh, where there's only one of and it does a lot of work. But then you, you're thinking about, you know, well, how are you designing it so we can have multiple of them running simultaneously uh, so that when we're ready to make some of those shifts, which we've already done, it it's it's easier to, to break it up. Like all microservices trying to create sort of, this bit's responsible for that, you shouldn't be doing it, you should be asking that piece to own that responsibility. Yeah. We have sort of patterns of uh, trying to create exclusivity or ownership you know, of a deal to say that this, this deal is being owned, it's being worked on. Uh, and then if it looks like it's uh, no longer being actively operated on, uh, the system sort of is detecting that and then uh, effectively sends it back in to be process uh, picked up and recovered where another algo sort of claims exclusive rights to own it mm -hmm. and, and carries on. So a uh, system has those sort of extra complexities in it that the, the monoliths have just deal with because there is only one of them running. Or there's a, a hot standby that's busy listening to it in the shared memory models. You, a lot of shared memory models yeah. in, in traditional finance are going on, uh, which doesn't work at all in, in microservices across multiple machines. Yeah, I mean... You know, what I find really interesting about, you know, I'm going to say the whole tech space, but is that it's quite a knowledge sharing industry, the whole technology space. What I find from speaking to people in who work in technology, constantly sharing knowledge and information. Is it similar in this space? Um, there is. Um, I mean, uh, like I say, there's a lot of providers you know, we, we use Azure and Amazon, a very good relationship with Amazon. They're very helpful in helping you utilize their platform and their services and understanding them. So there's a lot of sharing where that's not business differentiating. You know, there, there's sort of two aspects of uh, a company like Abex. There's the effectively the people that are running it and their experience and knowledge. That's what people are investing in yep. because we have a track record of having done these things. So the investors in some ways are, don't have a huge amount to go on when they're looking at perspective, but they look at the people they're investing in as well as the, the, the space that they're going into and sort of say, well, these, these people look like they know what they're doing. Um, therefore, it's investable. In, in doing algorithmic services, it's just about doing it well. And once you've got the basics in there, you can start to then add in more and more sophistication to to allow the clients to rely on you to do more sophisticated things for them, like automatically look after their portfolios, for instance, uh, and other things that are more 
uh, value add and therefore we can charge more for it. But there's there's plenty of, of room in, in finance for, for everybody. It's good to have that choice. You, The monopolies always get broken up at the end of the day. You, you need other people out there to at least go, well, you know, we do the same, but we're better in certain places. And the clients will... Certainly, all the bigger clients will onboard with multiple venues. They mm. they don't themselves like having exclusivity. They always uh, are looking for the best price. So, if you're an asset manager or uh, looking after people's wealth, or you're a pension fund, you know what's important to you is keeping your fees and costs as low as possible because that directly impacts your profitability. And so, they're, they're always hunting for cheaper ways to do things. Uh, and automation obviously makes that was cheap. What fascinates me as well is that you're definitely a leader in this space. How do you learn and how do you how do you continue to learn about uh, the developments and you know progression? How do you stay ahead of the curve if you're kind of if you're ahead of the curve yourself? Ah, oh, right. It's there's a couple of things. I mean, if you're you're looking at just the raw technology, you're looking at certain languages and things going on in the open source world and pieces you can touch. But on the business side, it's working with your clients to understand what they're looking for and what their needs are and where their pain is. Obviously, when you've got crypto, it's highly fragmented. Lots of centralized exchanges and um, Though, of course, there's several of them that have uh, are bigger and have the majority of the liquidity. So they become their own self-reinforcing leaders because yep. they've got the liquidity and that's where the institutions need to go to get the, the better prices. So it's, it's really just looking at it uh, and as well as trends that we see in the Web3 environment and how that plugs into blockchain in general and technologies like Wallet Connect are sort of changing the, the relationships that you can have. So if you think of it as like, oh, I've got to onboard with this central exchange, I had to have an account with them and do all kinds of bits and pieces, or do I, you know, using Web3 style technology, just interact with everybody that I choose to within, mm. a, within that space. So those kinds of things that are going on keep breaking down barriers to having choice yeah. uh, and everybody likes choices absolutely and there will be a lot of ctos listening to this so do you have any advice that you could share for aspiring entrepreneurs or ctos on building innovative products or platforms it's a little bit you don't know what you don't know yeah uh, is the way that i think of it it's hard to be the expert in everything it, it's so in some ways, it's like finding experts that you trust to help you uh, go, know the things that you you don't know. So it's always tempting in smaller companies to be, you know, I, I'm doing the finance, I'm doing the legal, I'm doing the HR, I'm doing yeah. recruiting, uh, and all all the other endless things without necessarily knowing what all the legislation is, what all the rules are. Uh, I'm accidentally doing something that I shouldn't or have I got the right paperwork uh, and so it's it's um, finding good partnerships to outsource a lot of that's cheaper than I thought it was in some cases uh, having those, those relationships uh, I'm more used to seeing what the 
giant corporations I work for would pay for these services. I think it's a little bit like sometimes it's like, are you that company? Oh, our price is 10 times higher <laughs> than it would normally would be. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a lot of companies that make leeway and help with, with startups. I think and people enjoy working with startups as often when I'm buying services from other software companies, it's like you, you can see that they're, they're going through that conversation of mind and who makes the decision and who, how long is this going to take? And yeah. who's in, and it's like, no, it's me. Uh, yeah, we're done. <laughs> and it's like, wow. Okay. <laughs> uh, and then you're onboarded in a couple of days and, and you've got the use of the service where if it had been in a more traditional environment, that would have been six months down the line that somebody would have finally inked the contract. Yeah. So yes, that. I suppose the real advice is, you know, try and get yourself surrounded by people that can, you trust to give you the advice to keep you from making the mistakes. But at the end of the day, in this environment, uh, the only thing that you, the first thing you must deal with is your security model. Yeah. End to end. Completely, you know, even if it makes it feel uncomfortably tight, what you're doing in terms of the security, it's like, well, it's probably at the right level then if even yeah. you're suffering. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> is it important for, say, if you have new new technologists joining the industry in this space, would it be important or necessary for them to have business knowledge as well? Or does that not matter at all? Depends. So because of the environments, well, the, the people that we have at Abex, we have, we have uh, multiple decades of experience between yeah. us. So we don't get too worried about hiring people who don't come with an idea of, you know, how to trade on CME yeah, uh, or what well, an options of future is as close to spot. It, that's not necessarily so important. I mean, the, we're very fussy on the, the ability of these people to do that, the job of a developer well, because, you know, if they're creating uh, weaknesses in the system or the way that they're testing stuff, then that can show up in a nasty way and embarrass us to clients because the there's always a, a fight uh between getting something out there and, and being certain that it's 100 percent safe to mm. get to get to true 100 percent automated testing is almost as much effort as writing the application itself it's it's tempting in those situations to um we're in a hurry we're starting to run out of money uh we need the system live what shortcuts are we taking and and that's where you're that if you've got the right people, we, you're taking less risk in in doing those decisions as yeah. opposed to sort of going, no, no, we've got to find another way of keeping going for six months until we've got the full end-to-end -end testing in place. You know, if you think about places like Amazon over the last 10 years, they've built up uh, a huge amount of internal expertise in testing and deploying stuff in real time almost mm. and you know that's uh, the great place to get to but you know you know how long that took them to do that and get to that exactly that expertise of tooling the i mean the marketplace isn't particularly mature in certain areas so everybody has a, a good story about building code and doing unit testing and some are even reasonably good at doing the uh integration testing but, you know, really sophisticated deployment systems that where you, you know, they can do canary and blue green and uh, roll forward, roll back quickly without um, disturbing the clients. They're, they don't really exist as something you can buy off the shelf. You end up yeah. having to do a huge amount of that yourself because it's 
fairly application specific, even in the Kubernetes environment, it's, it's not that clean and easy to do quite a lot of fiddling to do with those types of environments to make them behave that way. Yeah. I mean, I find that in the tech space now, well, we're surrounded by technology in everything we do these days, pretty much. Behind every piece of software, there's people behind every piece of technology. There's people building it, you know, um, and collaborating. So once you've found those people, once you've found those brilliant people to work with you on these projects, how do you keep them in the business? How do you keep them happy? How do you, cause, because typically people move around quite a lot in tech space. They how do, do you hang on to them? Uh, well, there's two pieces to that. I mean, obviously money is part of it, but it doesn't, money doesn't hold people. I mean, you see, well, well I'll, I'll explain that a little bit. Say somebody is, is earning and uh, they find out that they could be earning 30 if they jump ship. Yeah. So if you've got certain amounts of disparity like that, then you, you're inviting people to be coaxed away. Uh, even if they're not necessarily unhappy, it creates that unhappiness that they're not quite getting paid enough. There's a, another uh, version where lots of companies, you know, offer their options. And therefore you think if the company floats in the future, you've got, oh, I need to stay if I want to benefit from all that money. Yeah. And that does certainly work, and it tends to work well with uh, senior people who are different parts of their career, but it doesn't necessarily work with people who don't know what it means to yeah. receive that lump of money. The great thing you have in, in small growing companies is variety. Whenever you interview people, or, or even myself, you've been in a giant corporation, they, they are a specialist and they do one thing every day. Mm -hmm. And they, they would just get bored. Yeah, we kind of at the size where well, there's loads of things you can work on. What do you want to do? Yeah, uh, and that helps uh, most technologists enjoy and like that. Yeah. It creates a, uh, a little bit of stress for them. Some some are more comfortable dealing with unknowns and learning things, and other people like to, you know, uh, yeah, you know. So giving them that rich environment, um, I I don't see that. Lots of companies have this sort of idea that they need bright, shiny, colorful environments with ping pong tables mm. and stuff like that in it. That just makes the environment pleasant, but it doesn't retain anybody. And, That's true. And certainly when people get to a, a different uh, zone in their life where they've, their family is developing and growing and they've got different issues, you know, they're not going to be hanging around the office until 10 p.m. playing ping pong anymore. It doesn't matter to them. It's, um, you know, they, they've got other other bigger things to worry about, getting home for, for their kids and things. So it's just you, you give people that flexibility. You give people autonomy within the scope of what they can handle. You know, some people are extraordinarily overconfident and, and believe that they are better than they are. And But you still want to encourage them to own things and give them the guide rails and things. Uh, and they just... You just have to, to move on in the sense that people will always rotate in and out of your company for so many different reasons. Yep. Uh, and this may even be nothing to do with the company. It might be their, their family situation, all these stuff. So the, you've got to get to a, a view of it's just going to happen. If you've created a, a model where you're so dependent on that one person that's going to bring the company down, then you kind of failed. You've got to get the knowledge spread in other places or have a what would happen because it, you you learn it um certainly in the bigger companies 
uh, and even the smaller ones, absolutely nobody's indispensable. The company will just carry on without that person. You might think that they it's the end of the world, but oddly you just cope. Yeah. Somebody else will step up or you'll, you'll find another candidate to replace them. Absolutely. That's really, really, really nicely summed up. Um, I think it's a question that you know, it feels it's difficult to answer because it feels like every individual wants something different to the next. Everyone's at a different stage in their life. Everyone is working in the business for a different reason, particularly. So it's difficult to blanket the answer. Yeah, I mean, you get a lot of people... When, when you arrive in big companies, you're often not doing the job that you thought you were when you were being hired. Absolutely. Um, it's generally always brownfield where you are working on somebody else's legacy. Yep. And so people get excited about coming to startups and going, it's, it's greenfield. Yep. Uh, and it, we get to do something from scratch. But what they don't realize is that actually they're not prepared to handle designing something from nothing. You know that that's the where there's the senior people and the the leadership's actually needed is to say no, we're not doing it in in that way. There's also a lot of things that you see happen where you think back to the you know it's not too dissimilar to what was happening say in the 90s where everything was done in the database. Yep. So you got trapped on Oracle and the Oracle family and, and you were bound by how Oracle worked. Um, you still see people making those uh, kind of decisions in in uh in greenfield places where it's like i want to use just this technology because it saves me a lot of typing and it and it's open so it sits there and then but it won't meet your demands beyond it got you going quickly but it's not going to be healthy for the system you've made effectively a you've tied yourself into a single technology that's you you're then going to have to rip out painfully in the future yeah uh and that's where experienced people make the the biggest difference is that they know not to let that kind of stuff happen they have an escape route if they've made that decision they've built in the escape route <laughs> exactly exactly i'd like to ask about the future of the business and what's next uh what's next is um uh we we have a lot of uh companies interested in using our services um so we, you know, we are going for a round of uh, more investment coming in. We need to, to grow more people um, uh, as well as potentially, you know, more relationships where uh, certain things could be outsourced so that we can deliver on these things. So um, it's, uh, it's a great position to be in. Uh, we've, it's like the... People want it to succeed because they yeah. want the services uh, that it's kind of about there. Because as I sort of said, in, in the crypto space, it's not what what traditional finance has been doing for, for decades is it doesn't exist in the same nice, uh, well-sorted mm. way in crypto. So there's a, a huge opportunities uh, out there to uh, just provide those services and do extremely well out of it. Yeah. It's incredibly exciting. It really is. Um, and I've got one final question, which is possibly the most difficult question, uh, because I'm going to leave the floor open to you, and you can share a message with the listeners about anything you like, anything that you might have learned on your journey that you want to spread, um, or anything. Yes, I mean, I suppose that, uh, if I talk about 
my own personality is sort of led to me being where I am. So there's, in some ways, there's one career path. Uh, I'll difference it in this way. So you can see a lot of people being successful and becoming senior because they've just stayed put. Yeah. Uh, and everything's changed around them, but they've been the one constant. And, you know, if they're good enough, they're, they'll just end up running the place. Uh, and, you know, I've seen a lot of people do very well by being in one thing and just content with that. Um, I've not done that. I've tended to have a sort of, let's say, you know, a 18 months to two and a half year type clock that says, done it been it uh, i know what i'm doing now i'm getting bored yeah and the boredness leads to wanting to change i mean one of the good things about say jp morgan was very very easy to move internally mm. other companies make that harder where you if you needed to change you had to leave the company uh whereas you know that's one of the things that jp morgan does well and why people stay is that they just move inside the company and there's no stigma associated with it now that gives you a lot of experience it's like um, you know, when uh, CEOs of large companies or chairs of the large companies are talking to, you know, their junior executives who want to get into that space, it's like, well, you you haven't worked in enough areas of the business to run the company of this scale yet. You yeah. don't know enough. So um, this is more like my technology version of that, of having worked in all kinds of different places and spaces. Mm. I, I've seen lots of different solutions and technologies and ways of doing things happen. So it means that uh, I have a great big long catalog of, you know, that work, this doesn't work. Or when you're looking and assessing technologies, it's really, really easy that, you know, in half an hour to go, that is going to work. Yeah. Or, you know, that, there's, there's possibility in that. So that um, having a go at all kinds of different things, uh, really really helps you uh become um more useful to your definitely. company definitely uh there's always this contradiction and problem that you see within technology is if you're good at technology you end up leading technology and you and there's that middle area where you're the team lead where you're, you're leading people and you are um also trying to develop and some you know there's uh, and so both sides suffer, mm -hmm. where a lot of people and companies uh, fail uh, is that they, your personality is you and it affects the way you lead people. And so, you know, there's a, somehow it's a little bit of you have to work on yourself to be a, a better leader. For, you know, let's say one of those classic problems is you know, the reason why you're promoting doing well is because you maybe got high standards and you deliver to uh, you care and you deliver and when you leading people who don't care and make silly mistakes all the time it's very tempting to either do it for them or yep. be angry with them and uh, and so on and uh have a you know a friction in that relationship whereas it's learning to uh, coach and 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 uh deal with them a different way there's so certainly when i was at uh morgan stanley um I was not a good boss when I first started okay. it. Got sent on a lot of training, opened my eyes. Um, certainly the, uh, at JP Morgan, that shift to endless coaxing and negotiation that had to happen yeah. internally and externally. You know, uh, 
I, I was like most people sent one of those emotional intelligence courses and it's like, Ooh, you know, my, I was off the ratings and all of them. And it, it's like, oh, well, that's because I've only been doing this for two years. Yeah. Um, so all, all these good experiences help you become um, just better and more useful uh, yeah. and, and so on to deal with things. But yes, in, in small companies, you generally, there's less politics, but uh, people's personalities and their choices become the issues. Yeah, totally. Um, where, you know, you know, they, everyone's at different capabilities and how they lead and run. So, um, you know, uh, it's not like, uh, people are, you know, it's the first time there are many people doing certain jobs. Yeah. Um, and so, yes, there, well, I mean, one of the benefits we have of our company is that, uh, you know, our, our major shareholder, the, the company that seeded us is, is populated with extremely, experienced people who have uh, created from nothing multiple companies and invest all over the place so they they are having that kind of network and people behind you to have that sort of little chat in the office and go what do i do here <laughs> help, yeah. help really uh, is useful because they're they're yeah. not you know they're not going to solve your problem for you but they they will frame the problem for you and you know send you off with a, a, a different perspective which is is what you need because you're 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 trapped in your own problem absolutely uh and you need somebody else to just say but you didn't think of this did you <laughs> oh you're right yeah didn't <laughs> yeah exactly douglas i could literally sit here and chat for hours honestly i've been captivated the whole time oh, thank you uh, i feel like i've learned an incredible amount in this time so honestly thank you so much for taking this time out of your day to do this oh yes uh um, new for me and uh yeah enjoyed it excellent you were absolutely brilliant from me and isaac thank you so much and that wraps up another episode of leading beyond the code we hope you've enjoyed today's discussion and gained valuable insights into the world of leadership in technology your support means the world to us so please make sure to subscribe to our podcast and leave a nice review together we can expand our reach and make a positive impact on the tech community until next time keep pushing boundaries embracing innovation and leading beyond the code.